0: The final of the NWSL Challenge Cup is in the books, and the Houston Dash, for the first time, have a trophy with their name on it. They defeat the Chicago Red Stars 2-0 in the final at Rio Tinto Stadium. This is the Equalizer podcast for the final of the NWSL Challenge Cup. We've got all hands on deck, or most hands on deck. We're going to start. John Halloran and myself will break it down for you. Then we'll bring in Rachel and Pardeep, and they will do a little bit of a tournament overview and then we'll all come back for a third segment like the old days, pre-pandemic days, and we will do a little bit of a round table with different things from the tournament and from around the world of women's soccer. Also, Emily Dulhanty was supposed to be on but uh, had to withdraw at the last minute, but we do appreciate Emily's time on the podcast throughout the tournament, so... Uh, John, who was in the Megan Oyster role, couldn't make the semifinal, but back for the final. And uh, hopefully uh, you can play as strong as Oyster and the Dash defense. Uh, But what are your initial takeaways from the game, Dash score early, Dash score late?
1: Yeah, I don't think the beginning was what anybody would have expected. And even Clarkson yesterday in his pregame presser talked a little bit about how finals are usually cagey. And I don't think it really turned out that way primarily because of that early goal, which, of course, allowed Houston to sit back a little bit more and, uh, you know, motivated Chicago to get moving and looking for that equalizer pretty early. Um, you know, as somebody who's covered Chicago pretty closely for the past five years, I think it's a little tough just knowing the team and the coaches and the, the community here with the fans and and Chicago Local 134, because this is a team that's been close so many times. They've finished second in the Shield race twice. This is two finals in a row that they've finished in second place. And I think for a team that has gone to the playoffs five times in a row, so I guess six if you want to count the semifinals of the Challenge Cup as, as that equivalent level, it's, uh, it's a little bit difficult. But at the same time, happy for the Houston Dash, because this is a team and a fan base, which has suffered in, in harsher ways, I think, than, you know, Chicago's fan base, because Houston has failed to be competitive up until this point in the history of the NWSL. And now they have a trophy. And it's, it's a great moment, not only for their fans, but for our friends that we know down there. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the players who, I think it was Groom who talked about this early on in the tournament, that a lot of those players that are playing for Houston right now have been kicked from team to team to team and never really found a home. And a lot of them we know have a ton of talent and it seems like they have found a home in Houston. They believe even, even again, Clarkson after the game talked a little bit about how the results today and Houston's tournament probably makes that a little bit more of a desirable destination, which is something I think they really needed because they went into this past offseason with not having enough talent to win and not really having enough to trade to get that talent, and they made some really savvy moves Uh, They shored up areas that they needed to. They found some players on free transfers. They built a roster, and then they came in here, as, as, again, Shea Groom mentioned with this chip on their shoulder, and now they're coming away champions.
0: It's funny you mentioned that Clarkson had talked about the game being cagey because the game first kicked off, and I think it was Sarah Gordon had the ball at her feet, and for about three or four seconds, nothing happened. I don't know if she was waiting for a press that didn't happen or whatever, and I was thinking, wow, this could really be slow. And then the Red Stars <laughs> kind of made it a little attack. And uh, I think Jen Hildreth on CBS commented that they started quickly against Sky Blue and they were looking to do it again. And then before you know it, the Dash had that counterattack that actually started where Sharple sent a cross in that was lost immediately. And credit the Dash because they really uh, capitalized on that. And, you know, I thought – from a tactical standpoint, and I agree with just about everything you said about the Dash and their culture and getting their hands on a trophy finally and whatnot, from a tactical standpoint, I thought in the semifinal that it took Sky Blue way too long to figure out that Goralski, who started that semifinal, was where they could expose the Red Stars defensively, and the Dash did that in the first five minutes. And not only did they do it, they got a goal out of it, and they put Sharples on a yellow card. Now, they didn't really take advantage of it again, but I thought they tactically we were a lot quicker to react to that than Sky Blue. Maybe that was luck, but that was the way I read the opening five, six minutes of that game.
1: You know, it's funny too, because, um, you know, I'm looking here at my game notes and I have pretty extensive notes and I've got Sharples mentioned twice in the first four minutes because she put that ball into McCaskill in minute one that you're talking about that Hildreth made the comment about, uh, which resulted in a service in, into the Dash's box. And then I've got, you know, the note about her clipping Mewis for the penalty. And then I don't have anything else on her until she gets subbed out of the game. So it really did. I think the penalty changed the nature of the game. But also, you know, I think if you looked at her game overall, and it's it's a big exception, but except for that one big mistake, you know, it's not like she had a bad game.
0: You know, I think in terms of uh, Sharples, you're right. She didn't play poorly after she gave up the goal um you know St. George kind of the same thing and I think if you look at the, who the outside backs have been in these last two games for the Red Stars um they've played pretty well you know, considering who they were supposed to be uh but the thing that impressed me the most about the dash and especially in these last two games is they never broke away from how they wanted to defend and Clarkson had mentioned in the uh post game about how Oyster and Naughton gave them a little bit more possession out of the back. And I thought that was really true throughout this tournament. They never just got the ball at their feet and blasted it down to give the other team a reset. They really tried to play the ball tactically out of the back and they did it very well. I can't remember really too many, if any, terrible giveaways from the dash in the back. And that's really hard to do protecting leads or zero zero games when you've never, I mean, they'd never been in a knockout game before you know, in their lives as as a franchise. And uh, I think I'm really quite impressed with how the dash stuck to the game plan in these two games.
1: It's a nice moment for Naughton because she was obviously a player that Chicago thought was surplus to their requirements. Ship her off to the dash and, and she wins a title. I think ironically with the injury to Tierna Davidson during this tournament that Chicago probably could have used Katie Naughton uh this summer but you know alas that that wasn't meant to be
0: yeah I've got a little bit to say about that when we finish up on the dash um I believe that and you go into 2021 now and I think CBS who's got a three-year deal now with the league I think they got a little bit of like a free roll preseason sort of to see how they want to cover the league in 2021 I think as long as Rachel Daly is healthy and committed to the dash I think you go heavy marketing on Rachel Daly. I mean, th- she's gotten so much better since she first came in the league. Yes. It is very clear that that team marches to the beat of Rachel Daly, and I-, I think it's incredible and fabulous to watch how she has become not only the best player on that team, but the you know the heartbeat and pulse of that team.
1: Well, and that's, too, I think one of those things that we don't talk about a lot, but it is so difficult to find a forward in the draft who is going to come in and make a difference um you know there's really even even now as strong as this league is as deep as this league is and we, we you know have talked repeatedly about how most teams even have a second starting goalkeeper a forward who can put the ball in the back of the net is absolutely invaluable and uh she obviously had a big tournament and uh i think she kind of epitomizes that dash personality that they're trying to to come to with that chip on your shoulder mentality, because, you know, she's played that way since day one. Um, and she's always had that potential. Although there was that short period, which they, you know, both, both with the dash and with the English national team, where they kind of tinkered around with her becoming a right back. Um, but, but she is just that great, gritty, hardworking forward. And, you know, she has enough technical quality that, uh, it makes the difference and you know you look back at at Houston and, and not only I shouldn't even say Houston I should just say the league draft that year you know I think at, at this point um you know four seasons away from that 2016 draft she's she's easily the the best uh player to come out of there
0: Yeah, you know without having it in front of me I would probably agree Raquel Rodriguez Emily Sonnet I think we're two and one maybe you have a case but I would put daily above both of those two and you know w- all the discussion about the goal is that Mewis got in behind and then Sharples pulled her down and Sophie Schmidt converted the PK. But what about, how about the touch by Daly with Ertz yeah. trying to break up the play? And basically, uh, Daly keeps it alive. Risky play by Ertz and it didn't pay off, but right. I mean, that's a heck of a touch by Daly to keep that going.
1: Yeah, Ertz about killed her on that play. It came right through yeah. her legs. I think probably trying to just break it up, realizing that there was that danger off, off to her right side and just decided I'm going to eat the foul here. And of course, yeah, like you said, it didn't work. And, and did the ref play
0: advantage there? Cause I was waiting for a foul call and I didn't notice.
1: I think so. But you know, it's funny you mentioned that because we had this conversation off air uh, a week or so ago that I am a big proponent uh, having, you know, coached a fair number of games on the sideline where you start yelling at the ref only to realize that they're waiting to see if there's an advantage or, uh, having the ref make the call and then yelling at the ref because you had an advantage right. that, that soccer should adopt the rule that you see in hockey where the um, referee puts their arm up when they've seen a foul and is waiting for possession to be lost before they make that call. I really wish soccer would do something because I think that would tell the players, the coaches, and the fans, hey, I saw this happen. I'm giving it a second just to see what happens here, Um, because I do think that that leads to a lot of frustration, which then leads, even if they do call the foul, it leads the team that got called for the foul to think that the complaining led to the late call, and it leads to frustration on the team that got the call, and I think it amps up the tension and physicality of a game in a way that is completely not necessary.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And and in hockey, they keep the hand up until yep. the penalty actually yep. gets called or until the offensive team scores and negates the penalty. Um, a couple of people suggested maybe Ertz made a mistake. And I guess if you look back on it, I mean, it led to a goal. So it's, you know, maybe it's just, you know, where the result dictates whether yeah. it was a mistake or not. But I mean, I think that play could have gone any number of different ways. And there was maybe about a 3% chance that it went the way. That it did. And like Rory Dame said in the press conference, if Sharples lets her go, I don't think that's a given goal. Like th- I think that was a poor foul by Sharples grabbing her from behind based on the situation in the box in front of her.
1: Yeah, it was. And I, in, in fact, I wrote about this in the wrap up that's, that's already up on Equalizer. Um, but Sharples didn't need to make the foul for a couple of reasons. Number one, Mewis was at a terrible angle. Number two, to get off a shot, Mewis was going to have to take a touch back towards the center because she not only did she ha, not have a shot, but even if she was going to try to take a no-angle shot, it was going to be with her right foot, and we know that Mewis is left-footed. Uh, we also, if you take a, a screenshot of that moment when the foul was committed, Sarah Gordon has recovered into the play. Bianca St. George has recovered into the play. Both of them would have been there able to deal with not only Mewis, but the extra Houston attacker who was arriving into the area. Now, that's a a decision that Sharples has to make in a split second. It's a decision that defenders get away with all the time. They make the contact and the forward tries to stay on their feet and there's no call or the forward goes down and the ref says, I'm not going to, you know, blow a foul here and change the game. So, you know, Sharples made her decision and she didn't get away with it. But ultimately, in retrospect, uh, obviously, it was not a challenge that she needed to make.
0: Yep, completely agree. Um, Don't want to run too long on the segment, but just quickly on the Red Stars. Um, Dame said that he thinks they kind of overachieved to some extent by getting to the final. Um, I don't know if I agree with that or not, but I do feel like they were a transitional team like most of the other teams. Um, I feel like they found some things. I think Bianca St. George, from what I've seen, is the real deal. Yeah. But I, you know, when Rory James flies home, I can't imagine that he thinks, all right, I've got my group of forwards that's going to take me into the post Sam Kerr era.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think going into this, North Carolina was the only team that you expected to be in the final for sure. And obviously that didn't happen.
0: Portland was the gonna, best team. There's no question they, they were the they, best
1: team. They were. But Portland was in a transition. The rain were in a transition. Honest, Honestly, Chicago's transition was probably the, uh, I shouldn't say, the, it's the second least. Like, other than North Carolina, they had the least amount of transition to do in terms of the number of players, right, because they really were only – losing sam kerr now the caveat of course is that sam kerr is sam kerr and she scores 18 goals and wins the golden boot so you're only replacing one player but it's a hell of a player so um but they didn't they didn't get enough out of their attack and i think if you're rory dames you look at this tournament you say look savannah mccaskill is ready to finally be the savannah mccaskill that we've all thought she could be kaylee Watt is close to being the kaylee Watt that we've seen her when she's at her high level. Obviously they didn't have Yuki Nagasato there um, for the final few games. But if I'm Rory Dames uh, and I'm really being honest, I got to be disappointed in the tournament that Rachel Hill had. Uh, I got to be disappointed in the tournament that Katie Johnson had. You know, those are two players who uh, Hill started six games, played seven, I think uh, had the second most minutes of any of their forwards um Johnson played in in six of the games I think started four of them they didn't do enough and Chicago even over the course of a 24 game season you know are they going to be able to figure things out sure they're going to figure out a way to find a groove with their players and find some connections sure but they're missing a player they need somebody to come in there and help unlock that I really think that whether it's through a trade or a draft They need to go out and find a number nine. And it's not going to be Sam Kerr, and it doesn't have to be Sam Kerr, but it needs to be somebody who can unlock a defense, who can make that final ball, who can score an occasional goal, because they're they're missing that player still.
0: Yeah, and I thought their midfield was okay, could have been better. And uh, one last interesting thing that Dame said post-game was that he didn't He, he didn't think Haley Watt had a great tournament, but he kind of blamed it on the way they were playing, that they didn't give her enough opportunity to put an impact on the tournament. Not sure I agree with that either, but I, yeah, I kind of have to take his word for it because he knows a lot more about what they were doing and trying to do uh, than I did. Lots more to come on this NWSL Challenge Cup final edition of the Equalizer podcast. We'll come back. Uh, Rachel Kriger and Pardeep Khatri will give some thoughts on the tournament as a whole. And we'll have a roundtable segment with all four of us coming up a little bit later as well. Keep it tuned in. You're listening to the Equalizer podcast. What's up, everybody? Jeff Kasouf here, founder of The Equalizer. I want to make sure that you know we also have another podcast called Kickin' Back, which is interview-based. We talk to players, coaches, personalities from across women's soccer about defining moments in their career and some important things from the present day and look ahead a little bit to the future. We've had guests like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn, Jill Ellis, Bev Yanez, Allie Riley, Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm, so many already and many more to come. So, please go ahead and check out Kicking Back Pod on any platform you find your podcast after, of course, you've finished up with this episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Back on the Equalizer Podcast, segment 2 of 3 on this NWSL Challenge Cup final edition. And a reminder to please check us out on the web at equalizersoccer.com or for premium content, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe already. Just an hour or two after the final whistle, some great stuff up on the site and hoping to bring you more as we head into the world of the great unknown in the aftermath of the Challenge Cup. And speaking of, I'm going to turn this segment over to Rachel Kriger and Pardeep Khatri. They're going to have a more broad stroke review of the NWSL Challenge Cup at large. So Rachel take it away.
2: Thanks Dan. Hey party. How's it going?
3: I am doing quite well after enjoying what was a pretty good tournament honestly. And you? A,
2: a pretty good tournament and, and a pretty good final. Um, Dan was Dan was making fun of me a little bit the other day because um, we were talking about ideas for this segment and I said well you know we always risk it being kind of a lull final and He had said, oh, you're ever the optimistic, so I'm I'm glad I was proven wrong, of course. But uh, (laughs) this segment, we're going to be doing something called good, bad, and ugly. We are going to look at the tournament at large, like Dan just said, and we're going to talk about what was, well, good, bad, and ugly. So um, we we both were talking, and we said we had a lot of good, so do you want to start there? Do you want to start at rock bottom with the ugly? I think we'll start with the goods because
3: the biggest good of all is that the bubble worked, and nobody got coronavirus, and they didn't and everybody looks like they're gonna go home safe and sound,
2: yeah, it's great the the cleaning crew there was amazing. I really enjoyed the uh the pregame kind of salute, if you will to the to the medical staff and the people who have helped keep the tournament safe and sound and it just you know after the kind of fiasco with the Orlando pride and having to see them back out. It was definitely something that was on a lot of players' minds, that's for sure. And um, I know it would have been on mine if I was heading into it, Um, but the bubble worked and it's working in other leagues as we see, but NWSL was the first one to really come out of it with with a positive takeaway.
3: Yeah, I mean, it definitely did help that there were a smaller number of teams, a smaller number of people compared to, you know, something like MLS. But, again, credit where it's due, they got all of that stuff right, even though in that final week before the tournament we had that huge announcement where the pride wouldn't come. So I have to imagine that's a relief for so many people on so many different levels.
2: Yeah, for sure. Do you have any team player-related goods? Well, I think my
3: first good is very general as to on-field play in that no teams were particularly embarrassing. And really the more specific one is that a couple of teams that were struggling last year and even the year before made genuine signs of progress, right? Like our eventual winner, the Houston Dash, they have not had a history where they – play so well, and then obviously are contenders in matches, but would go all the way to the final and win it. I'm pretty sure a month ago this time, nobody saw that coming. Maybe even last week, nobody saw that coming. I'm pretty (laughs) sure on one of these podcasts, Dan and I were talking about how we still didn't see it coming, and we didn't have hope for them. And in that case, I'm sorry, and I apologize. I will admit I'm wrong. But that is clearly them... Putting in the work and showing that they can, they can compete. And there were other teams like that too. Obviously, the Spirit didn't make the playoffs last year, but they made a huge stride. And I don't think anybody would question their ability to compete going forward. And that was true for a semifinalist of this tournament, Sky Blue, as well.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I thought the play was pretty good for the most part. Um, it was definitely, you know, I felt for these players during some of these earlier games when it is, you know, hot and humid and muggy and everything. And you can't blame any sort of sluggish play on that for sure. Um, I think one of my goods is definitely goalkeeper play because goalkeepers were just outstanding in the tournament, especially when all spotlight was on them in the, uh, in the quarterfinals with three matches that went to penalty kicks. I still can't believe that that happened. Um, and then another good that I have is, just seeing progress from some of these teams like the Portland Thorns and Chicago Red Stars with such young players and a lot of injuries. I mean, last year we talked about how O.L. Reign, formerly Rain FC, was a team that had half of their roster injured and somehow made it to the playoffs. And then you have a team like Portland that's missing out on um they have like a half-going Lindsay Horan, if you will. And then you have Becky and Sophia Smith out. Uh, we're still waiting on her debut. And then seeing players step up and really take the lead, like Morgan Weaver. And then Raquel Rodriguez, Dan and, and John just talked about her a little bit ago. For me, she was one of my players of the tournament because she looked like she didn't even come from another team. She looked like she had been with the Thorns her whole career just with how she played and, and her consistency throughout the tournament.
3: Yeah. And you were talking about goalkeepers and the Thorns and that, those two storylines met each other, didn't they? Cause the Thorns had a Absolutely. complete injury crisis in goal. I mean, you, you would not wish that on most teams and they handled it so well. I mean, to the point where they had their goalkeeper coach, Nadine Anger, on the bench, which is actually pretty funny, but, and, Good for her. She's uh, she didn't. She told me that she didn't want to play. So I guess good for her that she didn't end up having to play. But they really did handle <laughs> that so so well. It was really up to that point in the tournament. I think the story of the tournament.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, she's she might be forty one, um, but she could definitely still take on like as if no time passed at all. I guarantee it. <laughs>
3: I would really have loved to see it. I understand why she wouldn't want to after what spending five years not playing, but it kind of would have been fun and wild and really was probably at
2: this point, the only thing this tournament was missing. <laughs> I mean, that really would have made me want to tell the league you need to change it officially to the chaos cup. Um, yes. and we have, <laughs> we have some chaos in our, in our bad group as well too. Do you want to start us off with your uh, bad selections? Well,
3: my bad, possibly ugly, but I will say for bad for now, is the scheduling. Because even though the goalkeepers did take center stage in the quarterfinals, I think a few times we all missed some goals. And maybe just some more lively play. And I think that was down to the scheduling. I think maybe they squeezed in one extra group game than they needed to. I understand why, but in the end, I was definitely wishing and hoping for goals more than I ever have in my whole life.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm with you there. (laughs) I I could still, and I said it earlier, I could not believe that we had three consecutive games. What was was the number? Over 200-something minutes without a goal? I I could not believe that for, for a tournament, but I also could believe it with with the timing and just kind of some sluggishness due to to the weather and and whatnot. And being on the East Coast, I definitely did not love the 10 p.m. games. I will admit that.
3: (laughs) That schedule Um, does take a toll on you at some point, even if you're just covering it from the comfort of your home. (laughs) <laughs>
2: it sure does, and yeah, that's for sure for my bad, I had um and this pains me to say this because if you follow anything that I write on Twitter, you know that I am a huge um passionate admirer of Shirley Cruz and just everything Costa Rican, which makes no sense because I'm not Costa Rican um, but o l rain to me i I think when you looked at the rosters heading into this tournament and you saw some of the names on the OL Reign roster, you saw some of the players they got um whether it was on loan or just new signings with Alana Cook, Adrian Jordan, Shirley Cruz, it just to me that was one of the best rosters on paper and I think they got a lot of really good um people joining their group and I was intrigued to see what would happen with Fareed Ben Stidi and, you know, he, ha- he does have a little bit of a language barrier, but, um, one victory for me did not cut it. Although I will say in their knockout round match, I think there were good glimpses of what's going to come. I think that was their most consistent performance and it just, it really pained me to watch them lose, um, against the chicago red stars because of how good they played that whole game not saying that chicago didn't play well at all because they did and obviously they were the victors because of it but i think that the last game that ol Reign played showed what's going to happen um in the next couple years you know rome wasn't built in a day it's probably one of my most famous sayings in sports um so give farid ben sidi a little bit of time i'm intrigued to see what he does with the team do you have any thoughts there yeah, I think
3: going off one of my previous points about how most of the teams in this tournament did well and we enjoyed this tournament, I think without a question, the rain were probably the most disappointing team at the Challenge mm-hmm. Cup. And in some ways, I'm not a 100% surprised that a team with a new coach who has new ideas and a bunch of new players on top of that, at least a certain number of them, would not find their rhythm after five five games. Like, that's not that surprising to me. So (laughs) I think you make a good point about how clearly by the end of their tournament in the quarterfinal against the Red Stars, they were showing signs of progress. And I'm hoping we can get to a point as soon as possible where we can watch these teams playing over more than just five, six, seven games, because then I will really want to judge these people. And But...
2: What did they only score one goal in that tournament? Maybe yeah, it two? was um
3: oh it's just one it
2: was one goal from Bethany Balser against uh the yes. Utah Royals, yeah, and that
3: is honestly quite shocking like I know you, there you were, can say I, yikes, <laughs> right, it's true. I know there were times where all of these teams or maybe most of them were struggling for goals, but One goal after five games, like that sample size is enough to know that one goal is not good enough.
2: Yeah. And I mean, one of the arguments not to stay on the rain too long that I know that, you know, Dan and John have probably made this argument too, I'm sure you have, and I definitely have, is that, you know, going into the tournament, not having Megan Rapino, I wasn't too concerned about it because she played six or seven games last year, so they found ways to win without her. And then getting all of those players back that were injured, yeah, they saw some names go like Megan Oyster and Shake Room, but... I mean, I expected a lot more from them after what they went through last year and how good they were last year, or at least how gritty they were to get a playoff spot. (laughs) And then to see them enter this tournament and just kind of fall flat, if you will, it it was definitely head-scratching for me. Oh,
3: yeah. I mean, especially when you put it in that context. I think it, it can be hard to compare them. In some ways, but again, I I feel a little bit like I don't want to make full evaluations on them yet. Because again, I'm, I'm going to say that five games is just such a small sample size. But yeah, Rory Dame said something after the game today, like see you all in eight months. So if that's all the soccer that Lorraine ended up playing this year, I don't think anybody's going to be very happy about that.
2: Yeah, that's for sure. Um, But for us, it wasn't quite ugly. We have some other things in our ugly category. You want to kick us off? Okay. So this,
3: I will say before I eventually
2: say what my ugly is,
3: is that this tournament did not have a lot of genuinely terrible or ugly moments. So credit to all the people involved with it for that. But... I am definitely upset that nobody celebrated a goal on the playground, despite a majority of the games at this tournament happening at Zion's Bank Stadium, where there was a playground.
2: <laughs> I'm. I mean, if anyone should have, to me, it should have been Amy Rodriguez because her kids were there and they were playing on the slide. So just like go for it. I'm totally with you. I wanted. Um. I love the. Um, They're not burner accounts, but that's the first word that comes to mind. Yeah. Like the glare and the playground and stuff like that. And just (laughs) the fact that it was asked to Lisa Baird what's going to happen with the playground. And she had said on a conference call, we need to get like another playground or new. We need to do something with the playground was just absolutely hilarious to me. (laughs) See, this is
3: this is why that playground was so important. And no matter what happened in in this tournament, and congratulations to all of the people that did well, they did not rise to the occasion on that regard. And I won't forget that. And I don't think Lisa Baird will either. (laughs) I'm just kidding.
2: No, or am I? no, I don't believe you. I believe that you're yeah. absolutely serious on this. You shouldn't believe me. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Another ugly that we had, and we have photographic proof of this from many different players, from many close-ups that maybe we did not want to see. Um, no disrespect to CBS and CBS All Access, but I did not need close-ups of the turf burns it definitely made me happy that I stopped playing soccer in high school um the turf was definitely much talked about throughout the tournament um Zion's Bank Stadium in Harriman, Utah is the uh, culprit of having turf not grass like uh the riot does but the turf burns were um who do you think had the worst turf burn
3: Oh, so Lindsay Horan is a great contender for worst, uh, turf burn. I remember looking at that and like audibly wincing. And I think <laughs> I needed a second to really recover from it. But I mean, yeah, so that will be my vote. But there were a couple of sky blue players from that picture Midge Purse posted that were some real contenders for worst turf
2: burn. Cause it I was, was a well-taken say Gina Lewandowski. <laughs>
3: I just want to say, whoever choreographed that shot did a very good job, but also I am very sorry they all got turf burn.
2: Yes, absolutely. It was definitely one of those pictures that you look at and think, this is great, but this should not happen. Um, Gina Lewandowski definitely won the turf turf burn war for me. Um, Hers was was a little bit rough. Um, But do we have – I mean, like you said, there weren't a lot of – ugly moments in this tournament. Um, it was a well-put-on tournament. It was safe and sound. And, and like you said, the players are going home. Um, some may be a little happier than others. Um, but any other ugly moments or, or good or bad that you think we missed on?
3: I think it will be ugly if the trophy breaks on the way to Houston, and if it doesn't, it'll be good.
2: <laughs> I just want to know how many um, – Cans of Budweiser, they can actually fit in the trophy. Ooh, yeah. Because it doesn't a good look question. wide. It doesn't look wide. They should run so one of those job.
3: like contests. You know how it's like, guess how many uh, uh, pieces of candy can fit in the jar? They should run one of those contests, but I don't know with who and what the reward should
2: be. That's for Houston to decide, I guess. It's a free yeah, idea. Get own one of the burner accounts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's all for us, uh, Pardeep, but we are going to have Dan and John back with us. We're going to do a full roundtable with the four of us, talk about the Challenge Cup and, and everything that happened. And we will be back for segment three on the Equalizer podcast.
0: Segment three of the Equalizer podcast. We haven't been three segments deep in some time, Dan Lalletta back with you. Great job by Rachel and Pardeep with their middle segment. John Halloran is also back. A uh, couple of quick things uh, that I learned while listening to Rachel and Pardeep and obviously scrolling uh, Twitter and the Internet at the same time, but there was a Amber Brooks-Alana um, Cook center back combo with the Reigns of so the Dash. Not the only team to start a brand-new center back combination, but they were the only team that committed to that for the entire tournament, and also we kind of didn't mention Breva Sally for the dash, and I thought they were a lot better when she was on the field than when she wasn't. I think she was kind of a find for them, so I just wanted to uh, get that out there. All right, we're gonna just we got about six or seven topics. So I'm gonna throw them out, and I'm just gonna throw it around the room and see where we are with it. MVP and Golden Glove, the MVP of this tournament. This was announced before the final was Rachel Daly. The Golden Glove was Kaylin Sheridan, even though Britt Eckerstrom made the official best 11. I'll start in equalizer seniority order and go to John first on this one. Agree? Disagree? Don't care.
1: I, the Eckerstrom one was kind of a weird choice, I thought, considering that she didn't play most of the tournament. Um, <laughs> and, and because details, Bixby details. was Bixby was so excellent, so usually you get in a situation like that, you have like a split vote. Um, so that was a I think I would have gone Kaylin Sheridan. Uh, for the the goalkeeper award. And I can totally get behind Rachel Daly. I think maybe Shea Groom, um, because not only the goal she scored to, tonight, but uh, the, that header she had back in the group stage, and I think she was a big part of getting their offense uh, to a little bit of a higher level this tournament. Rachel?
2: I agree with, with everything that John said, and I think the only player – uh, for me that I would have put maybe in the MVP category. Shea Groom is a good pick. Yeah. I would, um, also say Raquel Rodriguez for Portland.
0: And Pardeep.
2: Um,
3: I am satisfied with the choices of Rachel Daly and Kaylin Sheridan. I also think it's really weird that Britt Eckerstrom ended up in the, uh, <laughs> Best 11, but I think also it's worth mentioning that the best 11 is a big improvement from last year's best uh, best 11.
0: Well, I had jokes. Let's just be happy Megan Rapino wasn't in the best 11 because she barely <laughs> played more minutes last year to get in it than she did this year when she wasn't even there. Um, I, I thought the best player in the tournament was Dabinia. Now, should she be the MVP when they got knocked out in the quarters? Maybe not. Like You wouldn't have that in a World Cup, even though they were probably the best team so I didn't have a problem with either daily or shared. And there all, there was by the way, a year in major league soccer where the goalkeeper of the year was not their uh, best 11 or whatever they call it. Um, and so it does happen from time to time, I guess. Um, all right. Should we do this again? Lisa Baird. I thought it was interesting. She said the winner of the first NWSL challenge cup is the Houston dash. Now that's a tough moment. You know, A lot of energy, but I think she chooses her words pretty deliberately. So we'll reverse the order this time, Pardeep. Should we and will we do this again?
3: So I'm not – I don't have a problem if they don't do it again during this pandemic because clearly it took quite a toll on the players and the coaches who at a certain point were like, I don't want to be stuck in a hotel this long. But – The introduction of cup competitions, I think, would be a welcome one in this league and in the American women's soccer landscape. So I'm definitely for more cups.
0: Rachel.
2: Yeah, I come from a world where I cover men's soccer as well, and we have the U.S. Open Cup, and um there aren't enough teams and there's not enough divisions in women's soccer to have a style like the U.S. Open Cup, but I think having something like this would definitely um compare well to having a styled and a cup format uh within the season like MLS and USL have. Uh, I, I'm all for it a 100%. I think that they could do it in kind of a – An open cup way where there is traveling and not just being in one place, but um, obviously a pandemic has uh, skewed things a little bit. So um, I'm here for it. And I would like to see it because I don't think having the ICC uh, makes up for having a cup tournament because you really only have one team from the NWSL playing.
0: John third person doesn't need my cue by the way.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, So I don't, I don't, I think that it would be tricky in a regular season because if you do, you know, R- Rachel mentioned the men's schedules. If you follow any men's leagues, you see the fixture congestion sometimes getting a bit ridiculous. So I think that might be a challenge. But um, one idea I would think it is a good idea is to do something like this Challenge Cup in World Cup and Olympic years because that would give these players an opportunity to keep playing while a lot of the internationals are gone. And, you know, I didn't miss a lot of the U.S. players that weren't there in that tournament. I enjoyed watching the players who were there. I enjoyed getting to watch some new players. That would be a way that coaches could, you know, keep their teams in a groove. You could separate it from the regular season so it wouldn't affect that in the same way and still get an opportunity to see a lot of new players that you don't normally get to see during the course of an NWSL season during those Olympic and World Cup years.
0: Yeah, I don't think we're going back in a month-long bubble. And, you know, obviously if the pandemic ends, it wouldn't have to be a bubble. But, you know, maybe getting teams in different sites for different weekends, maybe for weekends where the national team players won't be there. Instead of having league games, you do something like this. And I know this wasn't one of our pre-discussed topics, but I'll throw it back around, starting with John, since you brought it up first. Is this a turning point where fans don't necessarily need to see Megan Rapino, Carly Lloyd, Mallory Pugh, Kristen Press because, you know, it was disappointing when they all pulled out whether it be opting out or injured. But like you said, I don't know that anybody missed it. I haven't heard a lot of discussion about any of those players. And and I'd say I wouldn't have wanted them there. I would have preferred them be there, but I was totally fine without and I think everybody else was too.
1: Yeah, I think we've seen this transition over the past couple of years where obviously the league still gets a boost From the U.S. team, it obviously gets a boost when the U.S. team does well in international tournaments. We saw that in 2015. We saw that in 2019. And there's certainly an opportunity to expand the fan base. But I think most of the hardcore fans, the people that you see online, the people that you see in the supporters groups, they're just there to cheer their team on. And there's not that same connection to the high-profile players as there was a couple of years ago. And I'm not saying it's not still there. It is but I'm saying that is lessening and we're starting to get to the point where this is a more mature league with more mature fans. Rachel, what do you think of that?
2: Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think there has been kind of a shift of being just um, player focused and, and player rooting for than there is um, than there is for the team. I think that's changed a lot over the years, like John said, kind of maturing in a way. Um, and I think that having – new teams and we'll get to that later definitely helps that too um i know for me i was super excited to see players like angela salem kat reynolds and Megan oyster just kind of shine without having that u.s women's national team label slapped on them i enjoyed watching the canadians and for the houston dash do really well um and you know it was said a couple times during the broadcast well there's no national team players for on um, the houston dash which was quickly rectified to say, well, there's no U.S. women's national team players. Um, and and I'm all for the national team doing well. Like John said, I echo his statements. But um, there is definitely quality in the league outside of the U.S. women's national team players. And I believe all of us would agree on that. And we saw that today with with Houston winning.
0: And Bardeep?
3: I think you guys make the point really, really well but I'd also like to add that I think for there to be a healthy rel I think that the this sort of development means that there's a healthy relationship between the NWSL and the USWNT where, yes, they are connected, they're very linked, and that's fine, but they also exist on their own. And that's probably the best development. Obviously, we're not to this point where, it's the NWSL isn't a, uh, about this very heavy influence from the USWNT, but any sort of steps to demonstrate that the NWSL is its own product and not just, oh, this is what the USWNT players are doing when they're not playing together is a great thing.
0: Also, if new fans came into the league just for this tournament, then they might be a little bit now, um, you know, programmed to not expect all the big stars to be out there as opposed to those who, you know, maybe came in at the start of the league or after the 15 World Cup, just looking for those U.S. players. So another possible angle there. Um, about what's next, real quick, and we'll let Rachel go first. We don't want her to get middle sibling uh, syndrome here. <laughs> um, we'll, when will we see more WOSA? Will there be a national team game this year? Will there be more? And WSL, or is it the Rory Dames where he left the press conference and says, "I'll see you guys in eight months."
2: Hey, I'll tell you what—I don't. I only have one sibling, so I've never experienced middle siblings <laughs> before. So I've, I sympathize now with everyone. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but I—I I want to be optimistic, but um, I'm going to be pessimistic. I, I don't think there's going to be national team soccer in 2020. I think that there might be another tournament style. I think that, you know, players coming out like Bethany Balser and talking about the mental health aspect of the tournament. I don't know if there would quite be a bubble. And the U.S., and in the USL, they're traveling to different markets. Um, and I think that's showing that it's working. There, there aren't a lot of positive tests. I don't know for sure if there are any at all, but it's working for the most part and to start out with. And I think that's something feasible or maybe you just limit it to, two or three different markets um i don't know but i think there will be club soccer again this year in another kind of tournament setting um i wouldn't say kind of having a mini regular season because if they were going to do that i think they would have done what mls did and have um the competition be like points for the um for the conference
0: except that mls had two teams that didn't make it nwsl had one team that didn't make it so that's going to be awkward when and ML, That's MLS uh, goes back to it, though they're supposedly still doing it. Um, far deep more soccer in 2020 on the women's side.
3: I think it's going to depend to depend on a lot of things that have nothing to do with women's soccer, not just this pandemic, but clearly how certain people in charge of certain parts of this country are dealing with it. Right now, it be at ed- uh certain states in this country that have nwsl teams florida and texas are being hit really hard by it by coronavirus so it's going to depend on a lot of things that are really at the end of the day out of the league's control and i don't feel particularly optimistic about that or the national team
0: i don't think the players want to go back in a bubble and i don't think that the nwsl has the resources to pull off some of what, like, say, Major League Baseball is attempting to do with teams traveling, so I'm pretty pessimistic. Now, I think the national team maybe will get a camp of some sort, yeah. but I don't know if yeah, they will I can play see that happening. games. And I, you know what? I've heard an idea floated about maybe calling in, like, a 35-woman camp and then having, like, an A-team against B-team sort of competition. John, I think I know where you're going with this, but what do you think? Yes or no on yeah. more soccer?
1: Well, I think the, the national team, that's exactly what they should do, is, is hold a camp, bring in a big pool, and hold two or three televised games. Everybody's been calling for this for years. They wanted to see the A versus B, and I'm not saying you have to do A versus B, but you know you get a chance to look at everybody because playing an international game is probably not going to happen. I don't think there's going to be too many players around the world that are going to be keen coming to the United States. And there's not going to be too many nations in the world that are keen having a bunch of Americans loaded up on a plane and coming into their country. So, you know, we're going to have to make do. Now, obviously, this bubble showed that if you're going to do that, if you're going to bring these national team players in, you're going to have to have something for them to do in their off time and probably provide some level of mental health resources as well. And whether that's, you know, you put it in a rural area where people can go out and hike on their days off or time off or, you know, at activities that you bring in for them to do, because I think people, uh, you know, go a little stir crazy. I can tell you that, you know, somebody who hasn't made any non-necessary trips outside my house in 19 weeks, I'm going a little stir crazy. Um, So I think, you know, you you have to take that into account. His first club soccer, who knows? Who knows? I mean, maybe, but again, you're going to have to swab people before they get on an airplane, swab them when they get off an airplane, have some sort of contained environment so they don't get infected while they're in a different city. I think it just creates so many uh, difficult issues, potential issues. And after this, I, yeah, I'm a little bit hesitant to think that any of these NWSL players are going to be really excited to, to head off to another one. Maybe you get to September and they decide to do you know something small. Um, but uh, it stretches—it stretches, it stretches um, plausibility, in, in my opinion.
0: All right, two more topics. As we're getting short on time, one of them, the protests. This was the number one topic of the tournament for the first two match days, and I thought it kind of quickly died down now you're seeing with baseball back underway in the wnba that in those sports that has been somewhat of a topic of conversation Um, i admit completely that this is worth a lot more time than we're about to give to it and we will most likely have some sort of a more formal podcast devoted specifically to it but pardeep just general and take it any way you want to go what did you think about um, the way the protests went down and how they were discussed and, re- and received and whatnot over the last month.
3: So for starters, I'm glad that the players and in many ways the league did not ignore the issue because that probably would have been a genuinely terrible idea. Um, that said, I can understand why while players were in this tournament and everybody was dealing with it, that maybe they don't have quite right away what sort of next steps that they want to take but over the next couple of weeks and months I'm going to 100% be looking to see what further action individual players teams and this league takes to really address you know systemic inequalities and systemic racism because it's not like it's an issue that doesn't exist in the NWSL or anywhere really but overall my Overwhelming opinion is that I'm glad people aren't ignoring it, aren't acting like sport doesn't exist in a realm where you can talk about other things, other pressing issues that everybody in this world should be talking about, because that's inherently untrue, even if, you know, maybe a couple of people did say so. But I think most of the people in this league, from players to supporters, are pretty much in agreement on that. I just hope the conversations continue and that people continue to keep paying attention, you know.
0: John, anything to add or build on that?
1: No, I mean, I think, you know, it was obviously something that we spent a lot more time talking about at the beginning of the tournament, and I think the NWSL being the first team sport being back, that the focus was, was certainly there, um, and it, it continued later. I mean, even today, obviously, there was discussion around, um, who was standing and who was kneeling. And, um, but, you know, a lot of teams put out statements, and I think Pardeep's right. When you, you, We're going to need to look and see where this goes headed forward because, and I've said this before, that soccer in America, um, particularly on the women's side, is still primarily a uh, middle-to-upper-class white suburban sport. And so that creates, I think an interesting dynamic between probably where a lot of the players are at uh, versus where a lot of the, the fan base is at. And I don't think those two sides align maybe as closely as people think.
0: Rachel.
2: Well, I think you both just said it really well. I think that in the beginning of the tournament, it was the most talked about issue of course and, um, And it was, it was kind of sad to see it fizzle a little bit. I'm glad there is still some underlying conversation of it happening. And like Dan, like you said, with the WNBA, MLB and and MLS and everybody taking part in these, in these protests as well, it's definitely bringing the conversation back up. Uh, I would love to see action behind it as well, because I'm a person that's all about action more than words and symbols so I'm, I'm really hoping to see that from not just players but teams in the league as well and just fingers crossed that it, it works
0: yeah i'm i like what Pardeep said about further actions because you can stand you can kneel and that's whatever your de- decision is for whatever reason but that's for a song that plays for a minute and a half or two minutes and it, you know there's really a lot of time in between national anthems playing where you've got to have your actions speak and not just statements and and words and whatnot so that's where i stand on it but i to reiterate this is a much bigger topic than we're giving the time for on it right now so uh look out for something a little bit more detailed about that going forward we will end on the topic of young players or even any really that you haven't seen a lot that you'd want to see more of just name one or two and why we'll go back to the seniority order to close it out so john um player or two that you that caught your eye that you're looking forward to seeing again
1: uh sure i uh i thought for utah one that really went under the radar that i'm excited to see more is uh kate del fava ah you
0: took my player
1: did i really that's crazy (laughs) because i don't think anybody even noticed that she was playing um (laughs) But uh, I thought she's a player who really uh, nobody would have known much about, and I think she's got a, a bright future. I'm excited to see what uh, what she can do. And uh, I think, I guess, if we're going to, I will say Bethany Bolser from the Rain, just because we all know she won Rookie of the Year, so she wasn't going under anybody's radar. But we see a lot of, I guess what you'd call, for lack of a better word, flash-in-the-pan players. And she did not show any signs of being a one-year wonder. Um, She came into this tournament. She was making impacts in the games that she was in. And she is a player that uh, really could have a bright future.
0: Good call on the one-year wonder. And the best rain stretch of the tournament was that 20 minutes when her and uh, the other player, whose name is slipping my mind right now, but came in and and, – off the bench um Rachel you're back to the middle child for this one
2: (laughs) okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with the rain hype train and I know give me grief later but I want to see what Shirley Cruz can do with a full season with OL rain she was one of the last players to report to OL rain um from Costa Rica so I'm I'm intrigued to see you know if there's a language barrier issue that needs to be worked out um if there's just kind of a Getting to know the new players and whatnot. Cause obviously she knows Farid Ben Sidi well. So I'm excited to see what she can do in a full season. Um, and then also Bailey Feist for Washington Spirit. I really, really enjoyed watching her in the games that she played. Happy that she was able to score. Um, and she came up in big moments when, when they needed her to. So, um, those are my two players. Fardeep. Um, I
3: will go with. Kalia Watt, because you guys talked about it, I think, in the first segment about how Rory Dames said that she didn't have a great tournament, but that was kind of his fault. He sort of took the blame for that. But really, when she joined the Red Stars, I was so curious to see what she'd end up doing and how she would end up playing with them and how really they addressed the lack of Sam Kerr now. But that was, of course, before the regular season went away and we got a challenge cup. But yeah, so again, seven games isn't a great sample size, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what they can all do with more time. And my other player is Evelyn Vion from Sky Blue, who I think for a while didn't get as much time as I expected her to, but clearly she came in and got them that important goal in the semifinals. And... Was somebody who had really, really great numbers out of college, somebody who I think with a little bit more time, I would be really, really curious to see what she can do, uh, if she can translate her skills to the league. I think she can. I would. But, yeah, like I said, I'm just really looking forward to seeing what she can do with a little bit more time, which is true for every player. And if I'm allowed a bonus,
0: God, I yeah, would like bon, go ahead.
3: I would like to see if Freya Coombe ever plays Midge Purse as a forward.
0: <laughs> well, uh, that might be a <laughs> national team call right now. I, I, I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion. I thought Midge Purse was one of the weakest players in this whole tournament. I did not think she had a good tournament at all at right back. So take that for what it's worth. I know nobody wants to probably agree with me about that, so you'll all stay silent. That's fine. And uh, I guess this is the drawbacks of going last, and we did not compare notes on this ahead of time, but I was going to go with um, VN and Del Fava. But to just randomly throw out a couple more, I'm interested to see if Breva Sally was lightning in a bottle for this tournament or whether she can be someone who can actually help make the dash attack go. Um, you know, I thought she gave outstanding energy and had some good – runs and some smart runs and makes the right passes and whatnot in this tournament. Um, but I, I think Bianca St. George with the Red Stars, I think she is the absolute real deal. I thought she was tremendous throughout the entire tournament, you know, a, a little bit rough around the edges, but she can get forward. She can defend. She's not afraid to get in there physically. Uh, so those will be my two uh, on default. Unless anyone has anyone that they just thought of to throw in, we will put a wrap on this podcast. All right. Well, thank you all three for your work, not only today, but throughout this entire tournament, uh, the late night, and you've all done at least one late night session with me. And we've discussed how tough the hours have been, but thanks to John and Rachel and Pardeep, also Emily, who uh, was a late scratch, but was supposed to be on this one. And hopefully hear from all of you again, Ray Curran, also for participating in one. We know Rachel's on the social, Jacqueline Purdy, is back home keeping late-night hours doing the production. So hope you've enjoyed all the Equalizer podcasts. We'll probably get back on a a once-a-week basis after this, uh, but check our Twitter account just to make sure on that. So for everybody at Equalizer, I'm Dan Lolletta. Thanks for listening to the NWSL Challenge Cup version of the Equalizer podcast.